We're very pleased to share a conversation with Chicagoland NAFA President Chris Gandy. This episode is brought to you by Advisor Axis. Advisor Axis manages the prospecting, onboarding, and maintaining of a healthy client base. Chris Gandy is the founder of Midwest Legacy Group and serves organizations including the United Way and Big Brothers Big Sisters. He has spent 20 years implementing strategies to serve his clients well as they plan for their future. Chris, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, John. I appreciate you having me on your on the podcast today. It is it is my pleasure, uh, Chris. When I first heard you speak years ago, you were on campus at the University of Alabama, and you've been featured since speaking at events like the NAFA conference. Uh, you've recently been interviewed in articles, including GQ and the September cover story of Advisors Magazine. In addition to your work in the community and with your clients, it seems like you've been incredibly busy. Yeah, I mean, John, you know, there's no time, there's no time better than the present to, to educate and empower and uplift people, also people in our industry, uh, to give them a, a glimpse of what the possibilities are and to remind ourselves that we were, we were tasked to do a, 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 a job that is ever-changing, is ever-evolving, nothing is consistent, but we have to be persistent in our effort of excellence. So, yeah, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a nice run, but uh, we just begin to scratch the surface of what I believe we're capable of doing, uh, both individually and collectively. I'd like to take you back uh, 20 years ago and ask you to share with our audience about how you got into the industry and what challenges and opportunities you experienced. Um, so... I entered the industry uh, in 1999, fresh face out of uh, playing professional sports. For 20, 20 some odd years, I spent um, pursuing the lifelong dream of playing uh, professional basketball and uh, was blessed and fortunate enough to have the opportunity to, to do that at a very high level. And then because of a, um, uh, an injury that sidelined me, but it was a, uh, uh, one of the career enders or at least career setbacks. I decided to enter the, the, um, uh, the, financial, the financial service world. And I decided to enter the financial service world because um, I got um, two and a half contracts paid out over an 18 month period of time because of my injury. And uh, I had to figure out what to do with it. Uh, and I, I couldn't, I wanted to figure out what to do with it and how to leverage it. And so instead of someone else telling me what to do with the money, I wanted someone to show me what to do with the money. And so my advisor asked me after my meeting with them, um, what are you going to do with yourself? I said, I don't know. And I asked him three questions. I said, what kind of car do you drive? He told me what kind of car. I said, where do you live? Because at the time we were in Champaign, Illinois. And he asked, where do you live? It was a a, uh, subdivision called Cherry Hills. And I said, okay, that's nice. And I asked them one last question. I said, um, do you make six figures a year? His answer was yes. I said, where do I sign? Um, that was my job interview. And so my pursuit for the industry has always been around creating lifestyle, creating inequality, and also being able to create a platform for education and, and opportunity for others uh, outside of myself. You asked about challenges along the way. Um, I, I think the challenges that um, I that that saddled me were the challenges of my mind and the challenges of what the industry had waiting for me. So, 
I mean, the challenges of my mind is because if you look in the mirror on a day-to-day basis, you try you start to realize I either like or I don't like what I see in the mirror, not from a cosmetic standpoint, but the person I had become. As an athlete, I had become a person that was consumed with the spotlight. I was consumed by the idea that I needed others to feel self-validation, right? Um, and I was consumed with the idea that other people would take care of the, of the, of the critical and important things. And so it becomes the reality. Your perception becomes your reality at that point. Your reality is not real. So there were many relationships that I probably damaged. There's many, many opportunities that I probably lost because I was not at a place where I was prepared both emotionally and physically and psychologically for uh, the role of being an advisor. That was one of the largest challenges I, I believe that existed was the maturity. Uh, the guy who recruited me, a young man by the name of John Wright Jr., um, he's now the general agent at, at Northwestern Mutual. Uh, he took over the Goodwin Agency down in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he told me one day, he said, you know, you know, the best thing about being a rookie is one day you'll, you won't be anymore, is that you'll be a sophomore. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. He goes, if you can survive your first year, then you can make it the rest of your career. So he goes, you're in survival mode. So for, for me, what he was able to do is he was able to take sports and related to everyday life. So I started to do the things that I did in sports in the world in which we live. So um, in basketball, you shoot 500 shots in the morning, you shoot 500 shots in the afternoon, whether you're in season or off season. So to him, to me, he said, you know, um, just like shooting shots, you go and you sit down and you actually make phone calls. He goes, no matter what you do, 100, you do 100, you got an opportunity to make it. I said, okay, cool. So that's what I did. <laughs> um, so I did exactly what he told me to do. He said, you know, you're going to make calls and you're going to set up time to go meet with people. He goes, that's like going to the game. He said, what do you do before you go to game? I said, you get prepared, right? You got to eat right. You got to do everything right. So the, the daily habits and rituals of an athlete that, that, that drive the discipline, we were able to translate those into the world of what we do to help us when it's not as consistent of revenue and not as consistent outcomes, we were able to create consistent behaviors that gave us the opportunity to excel. It's, it sounds like that may have been a unique experience because I've seen uh, several cases in financial planning where it's kind of like a puppy mill, you know, the spaghetti theory of financial planning, throw them against the wall and see what sticks. Um, Mm -hmm. Have you seen that as much or was your experience so dramatically different that everyone had that, that kind of coaching? Uh, I'm not sure about everyone. I've, I've been in the industry now, you know, 20, 21 years, which is so interesting. But, you know, in the, in the time I've been in the industry, I have seen a lot of the throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. I've seen a lot of that. Um, my experience of coming into the industry was a little bit different. And it's a little bit different because of, I, I believe, who I am as, a, as an individual and how my mother raised me. Uh, my mother raised me as long as there was a 1% chance you got an opportunity to win. Right. That was one. Number two, failure is not an option. If you decide to do something, you need to do it and be the best at it. So that when people start saying, well, maybe I'll go do this and maybe I'll do this and maybe I'll do this. I was like, failure is not an option. So if someone's going to fail, it's not going to be me. It's going to be you. And so when we started setting our, our activity goals and we started setting our goals, our behavior goals, I would set my goals. When someone would say they'll do 100, I say I'll do 120. And then they'll say I'll do 120. I say I'll do 130. Yes, the mentality of an athlete is you compete. You, you compete until vigorously until you can't compete anymore. 
you don't let other people outwork you, no matter what it is. So if someone's going to get 20 prospects this week, I'm going to get 21, right? And that's just how I set myself up. Whether that was the right formula or not, it was the right formula for me. Um, I think people have to figure out what the right formula is for them so that they push through fear and uncertainty and the discomfort to still do the things and to be, perform the behaviors that is not natural as human beings is, you know, we throw ourselves in the, in, onto the sword on a daily basis. And we, we constantly are, are fighting the idea that people need our help. The statistics show it. Um, the amount of debt people live to at least 15 to 20% over more than what they make. I mean, those numbers are startling and those numbers are, are detrimental, I believe, to, to people's retirement strategy. Um, and so those are real numbers. And so when we start to look at those numbers, we have to embrace those and understand that the work we're doing is bigger than us. And because it's bigger than us, we, we may not get the results we want today, but if we consistently do the behaviors necessary, we will get the result we want long-term. What has been the most significant disruptor in financial services? Um, what changes have you seen over the last 20 years and what do you see happening right now? Interesting. Well, I see the market shrinking, which is really challenging. If you look at some of the statistics that Limerus put out there by 2025, 2030, for every, what is it, 10,000 people, there'll be one advisor. I mean, the numbers are just startling, right? So there's a tremendous opportunity for people to come into this business because of the baby boomers. I mean, there's so much opportunity. I see that being as a, as a, as a significant change that's coming down the pipeline. But I would say from the disruptor standpoint, I would say that the companies have changed. A lot of the companies before were very personal. Uh, insurance is a very old school business. Um, a lot of relationships, a lot of trust, a lot of those things and a lot of the companies have moved to um, uh, automatic uh, algorithmic things. They moved to computerized systems. They moved to, to a client service model where there's a, you know, there's a queue to call. They moved to, there's a lot of things that have changed that I believe is affecting the industry as a whole. And then obviously the internet. And the internet is real because when I started off in the business, people didn't Google you. People didn't come in saying, hey, I, I already researched 12 companies and I heard that this company actually has the best term insurance. This company has the best permanent insurance. This company has the best long-term care and that's what I want to buy, right? And everybody and their mother right now are financial advisors versus insurance agents or insurance professionals, right? Everybody and their mother wants to be chasing the dream of being a quote-unquote financial advisor. But even though you advise on finances or you may be a banker, doesn't mean you're a quote unquote financial advisor. We find that there's a huge void in the market space today of, of people because of the way the companies have acted and the way we have acted as advisors. And we have not replenished that pool of talent um, at this particular time. So there's a tremendous opportunity, I believe, ahead of us. When, when you have clients come to you who maybe have talked to a financial advisor, maybe they've been online and they, they asked Dr. Google, you know, questions about their financial plan. What do you see clients miss most frequently, whether they've worked with an advisor or not? Uh, most of the time I see them miss that they didn't use a, um, a formula to come up with uh, the, the, the strategies that, um, 
that they quote unquote heard on the news or they saw on TV or, or um, they didn't use the tools that we have to help people really understand why they should have what they have. I'll give you an example. Uh, risk management, when you ask someone, do you ask someone, do they need long-term care? The answer is typically no. Well, no, I'm not going to end up in a hospital. I'm not going to end up like my, the only time you hear, yes, I actually want to buy that typically is when they've had an experience in their family. Again, live too long, die too soon, or our health changes, people will not address it until they have something that's compelling and immediate for them to address it. So, um, no, I think the challenges obviously are there um, as a dealing with something like that, because as humans, we don't want to admit our mortality or our, our morbidity and the fact that something possibly could happen to us in which we won't be as wonderful and amazing as we are today. You made a statement on our prep call that, that I hadn't really thought about from your perspective. Uh, you were talking about uh, choices the government has made. Talk a little bit about that. Well, we saw that um, in my role with uh, the association, um, that's NAFA, the National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors, we saw, we saw a lot of the changes happening uh, with the CARES Act. We saw a lot of things happen, happening with, with Dodd-Frank. You know, we've seen a, we've seen a lot, lot of things, but the, for the first time in a long time, I believe, in this industry, we saw significant amounts of opportunity happen when we consider certain insurance products. Um, significant amount of tax advantages, significant amount of play because the government says, you know what, we don't have the money to take care of all these people. And because we don't have the money to take care of all these people, let's give people an incentive to possibly utilize. And so they've created the long-term care deductions. They've created some opportunity that will allow for us to be able to advise clients along the way on a tax-favored basis that they can benefit from just by doing some planning. What a great opportunity for us to be able to, to help those people. Those people should seek help. Those people should, if they're unaware of those opportunities, those tax advantages, they, could see, they should seek out a local professional or somebody who now Zoom is a local professional, so you can work with anybody in the country and uh, work with somebody you trust and someone you care about or someone you want to get to know and you can see yourself having conversation with outside of this in the future. And, and that brings me to my next question. That's a great segue. I'm a, I'm a new financial advisor or I'm a seasoned financial advisor and I'm looking for different ways to engage my clients in a time of COVID. Uh, talk about effective ways to do that, to keep the conversation going and, and uh, to work with clients during a global pandemic. Yeah, we doubled down on our efforts and we spent a ton of time trying to connect the dots. I believe that right now, if it's, you know, the call to action for financial advisors is that you are now forced to become a better prospector. You don't have a choice. You have to become a person that you seek out individuals for the purpose of having the opportunity to earn their business. Um, because Prior to, yes, maybe you have a website. Maybe people somehow get referred to you. But I think advisors now have to be very intentional with their efforts for prospecting. They have to be very um, purposeful with the way they think and how they go about doing things, right? And um, there's, no, there's no question. Like, there's no, there are no shortcuts to this. You've got to 
get in the trenches and you've got to focus your time and energy on what I call the fundamentals of the business. You know, the fundamentals of meeting people on a favorable basis, the fundamentals of clear communication, the ability to articulate your value proposition in the marketplace. We have to double down on that and we have to double down on our commitment to, to help people. What I mean by help people is our intention has to be stronger than their will to say, I'm not interested at this point. Like we have to go around and tell people, this is how it's going to impact you. This is why you have to work with someone, whether you work with me or not, you have to work with someone who can guide you along the way and make sure that you don't hit those significant potholes, those significant crevasses that you may run into, those canyons. We wanna make sure that those aren't game changers for you. We wanna make sure you have an opportunity to just move right through those. So, you know, our work is cut out for us and I would always strongly recommend that people double down on those fundamentals. The fundamentals of having an absolute sales cycle, the fundamentals of, of having, uh, having a commitment to prospect and meet new people on a favorable basis and the, and the actual uh, process of being able to commute and articulate a value proposition along the way and also be able to articulate what's happening in the process without having to bombard them with numbers. You've given a lot of great advice for advisors, people established and folks coming into the industry. But I've seen in preparing for a conversation, I've seen pictures of you uh, leading classes, helping develop leadership. Uh, talk a little bit about how you're engaging the next generation of advisors. Sure. Currently, I'm the sitting president of the National Association here in Chicago, um, just the Chicagoland chapter. Um, uh, we, we are connected, obviously, to our state board, um, and our job is to grow the constituency and advocacy uh, throughout. I am committed to helping others develop that discipline and those skill sets like I did early on. I think one of the reasons why we had amazing success early on because I was absolutely focused on the day-to-day -day discipline of, of not failing. You just have to figure out how. So, um, uh, you know, there's a handful of quotes out there that says, the answer isn't how, the answer isn't why, the answer is how. And, you know, you see that all the time is that people will say, well, I can't do this. Or if I did know, I would be able to do this. Well, I think a lot of people can do all those things if they just believe they can. And they seek out the individuals, the knowledge and the people who can help them accomplish that. There's no reason why we can't accomplish numerous things, big things, big, hairy, audacious things. You know, let's, let's, let's focus on, as advisors, let's do a billion dollars. I told my class, let's do a billion dollars. Let's affect the next generation by a billion dollars. Let's do that, and then we go to 10 billion. Then we go to 100 billion. Why not? I look at it in sports. If I'm not doing it, somebody else is doing it, so why not us? Why not now? So let's start it. I, I can hear that in your voice. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the current environment. There's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, there's a lot of unrest. There are questions that I'm sure your clients have and, and other advisors' clients have, uh, whether it's political, social, uh, global pandemic. How can advisors best serve their clients in an environment that is as tumultuous as it's ever been? Well, I think that's a two-pronged question, right? 
I think the first thing we can do as advisors is have empathy and sympathy. And, and people will say, if you have empathy, you don't need sympathy. And I think we need both. I think we need to understand where people are in their lives at this point. I think we need also understand that because we are where we are, we have to move in a direction. If you notice in the pan during the pandemic at the very beginning, people literally stood still like this. They stood still as, as if red light, green light, or like someone turned on the lights and you weren't supposed to be there when you were a little kid. That's what they did. They stood there. They stood there and they waited. They stood there and they waited. It's like being in the starting blocks, like ready, set, 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 you know, and you start to look up and say, are they going to say go? Right. And when they say go, you're already on your heels. I saw people for 60 to 90 days say, I'm just not going to move out of this space. Maybe they won't see me. And I think for clients, what they were looking for is to really understand that was the first time they had a, a bout of confusion. It's almost like getting hit with a punch and all of a sudden they're like, I'm dazed and confused. I don't know what is really going on. And I think advisors on our side, we miss the boat there. We missed an opportunity because when someone's down, you help you pick them up. When someone gets knocked down, you say, are you okay? We did not do our part by saying we're okay. I think as advisors, as we start to go forward, how do you thrive in this? I think the way to thrive in this is you have to have sympathy, you have to have empathy, and you have to have a plan for people. You got to be able to inspire people. Now, now is the time. If you're going to inspire anyone to, to, to transcend their current surroundings and what's happening to them, now is the time. So whoever can inspire people the most will win. It doesn't matter what you're selling, right? People will always remember, hey, I remember you called me and you you, you, you called me, even, even though I didn't answer, I noticed you called me five times and all you called and said on the message was, I was just calling to check on you. Hey, I was just calling to check on you, see how you're doing. You know, we're all in this now and, and, and you know, it's affecting so many people. Is there anything you need? If there's anything you need, maybe I can help, right? You know, just that idea of, of I'm not calling you to sell anything. I'm calling because I'm concerned. I care as a human being. And I think, if we get back to the idea of let's, let's, let's be human. I think if we get back to that and forget about the insurance, forget about investments, forget about all that. And we just become human and try to connect to the human spirit of other people. I think some of this stuff goes away. I think the idea of, um, you know, we saw a lot of, um, of, uh, of social unrest. We saw a lot of, we've seen a lot of, uh, of death. We've seen a lot of disease. We've seen a lot of, of isolation you know the whole idea of social distancing and staying in your home is isolation and as human beings we seek that that connection with other individuals so i think the challenge is now if no if, if you hadn't had psd ptsd before i would say now a lot of people do because of because of what the pandemic has caused has caused that bout of confusion so I think the people that are, again, double down on your efforts to just sit and call. Don't schedule a meeting. Just call, sit, call, 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 call. Even the people that aren't clients of yours, call them and say, I just called to see how you're doing. I know you and I don't work together yet, but at some point in the future, we might. So because of that, I know that that may change, right? And they'll remember that. They always do. And so as we, as we move forward, I think, and again, moving forward, how do you get from one place to another is um, you put one foot in front of the other foot. 
I think the challenge that we've got both from the consumer standpoint is they've got to be willing to trust other people again. I see that now people don't trust people. They're like, well, I mean, if you think about it, um, people were fighting the police. Okay. We don't trust them. People were fighting the government. We don't trust them. People were fighting with each other. Well, we don't trust you. And now people are saying, I don't trust you because you may have coronavirus and you may give it to me. Right. So is it, is that not testing multiple levels of trust? So what is that doing to our society is creating a untrustworthy society. And we have to get back to trusting each other because we're all bound together through one mutual strand of destiny. Right. When my, when my brother or sister struggles, I ultimately struggle regardless of race, color, and creed. And so we've got to get back to that for the spirit of each other and for the spirit of this, of the society and for the spirit of the United States, we've got to get back to that. We're all in this together. There you go. Uh, if you could tell carriers one thing about the education and distribution of their products, what would that be? Um, to make it less complicated. Because so, because the products have so much regulation and the products have so many moving parts, I think for a client, they again, they want to know what time it is, not how to make the watch, correct? And I think the more and more and more and more that we try to help them a client wants to know what can this do for me and what will it provide in my life? Yes. They need to know some of the nuances of it. And yes, we need to send prospectuses to homes and yes, we need to give them all the right rules of engagement. But I think for companies it's so hard to sell the product because it's not relatable. Right. Number two, I think, I think the companies have to really take a hardcore look at their distribution system and how they distribute product to different cultures. That's one of my, I sit on the National Diversity Task Force for NAFA also nationally on the, you know, that connects with the national board. And I'll tell you that when insurance companies or investment companies prepare the knowledge, they have to look at, if we're going to give this knowledge to people, we have to go back to understand what knowledge do they have already? Because I can tell you, in the minorities communities, I can just speak in the African-American community, but I work in other communities. But I'm going to give you some real stats on the African-American community. 70% of people that are African-American say they would like to have more insurance or buy more insurance. But then 90% of them says, we don't know where to buy it. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so now you dig a little deeper. So now you did, you look at the African-American study that NAFO put out in the last um, within the last quarter. And you look at that study, that study is even more startling because now all of a sudden you start to see that people are wanting to buy, but because they didn't grow up with the product in their lives, that they don't even know where to begin learning about the product so then they can make a decision on what to buy. So think about it. Think about it like this, John. Um, you and I, I'm, we're asking people to make educated decisions on information they don't have. Think about what I'm saying. We're asking people to make educated decisions on information they don't have. So if you come to me and you educate me, am I prepared to make that decision? If I've never had an experience with that decision before, if I've never had an experience, if my parents don't know anything about it, my cousin, sister, brother, father, uncle, anybody I know have no experience other than possibly a bad experience or an experience at work, other than that, how can I feel good about 
pursuing that or securing that for my family. So it's a perpetual issue. It's, 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 a, it's a perpetual issue that at some point has to stop. And I think it starts with the, the, the way our, our products are distributed. I think we have to do a better job, especially insurance companies and investment companies. We got to do a better job of, of creating the, the content so that our clients can consume it the way in which they want it. Because no one wants to be sold, but everybody wants to buy. Right? So they have to, we have to put out there the way in which they would consume the product in which we, we can service them with. Um, in the African-American community, I would make it very, very, very much based on, on family. I'd make it very much based on, on, on independence. I'd make it very much based on, on community. I'd make it very much based on overcoming and, and doing and, and, and excelling. I'd make it very much based on, on education. I'd make it very much based. I mean, there were some things I would do. We have to go back and we have to educate, like I have to educate my parents and my mom and my mother's siblings which there's 12 of them because none of them have had experience other than at work, which isn't a great experience with investments or insurance. So, so, and you start to look around and I ask other people, what did your parents teach you about money? It's one of the greatest questions. If you're an advisor, you can ask, what did your parents teach you about money? Because whatever they taught you, some of those things, whether you like it or not, you're going to embrace. And if you're, you're not, if you're not smart about it, you may actually, project that on other people indirectly without you even knowing. Well, I didn't grow up with money. What does that have anything to do with the client or the client situation besides zero, right? Whoa, that's a lot of money. According to who? It's all relative. So is that, so you can't say that's a lot of money. So, so I find it challenging that, that uh, we try to sell product, even the under all the way through underwriting, we sell product mm -hmm. to, to, to cultures that have a, 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 a longstanding history and bout with high blood pressure. This is, let's just take that, right? So let me get this right. If 60% of all African-Americans out there over the age of 50 years old have high blood pressure, so wouldn't it make sense if we're going to service that community that we have a product that's built it's baked in the cake. It's built with high blood pressure. Like, so you apply for this type of, this policy, it may not have all the bells and whistles, but you will be able to protect yourself and your family. And we've already included the cost of higher blood pressure. If that's something you want to apply for and you have high blood pressure. So why not create a system? So that if we've seen this before, we've seen it again, we've seen it again, we've seen it again. Why do we have to continue to go through some of the underwriting woes we go through when they already know part of the result? Just curious. Other than we have to continue to do it the same way we've done it in the past because no one said that it could be done differently. That from an underwriting perspective, it's, it's not fair to them. That's interesting. Right. And, and, and the problem is that the insurance companies have seen them before. Let's take a company. In the history of the company, in the history, how many 45-year-old, 185-pound, six-foot-one males have they seen that are minority descent that have high blood pressure? Stop it. It's not the first time. Yeah. 
They've seen it thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of times. So why not create a product that fits that model? Hmm. It just makes sense. Price the product so it fits that model. So now if that's the only issue problem that you may have, it has a different mortality table, it has a different morbidity table, it has a different premium schedule, but you're still able to get the product. You're not, the product is not denied from you when you're taking pennies to multiply dollars to leave to your family to take care of your family. You're not denied access to that, that, that insurance product. Algorithmic underwriting that's happening now is if we take a look at it, lots of companies have already started that process. If you, the PNC companies had started years ago because they started looking at things like credit reports. They started looking at credit scores. They started looking at zip codes. They started looking at things because if it looks like a duck, smells like a duck, it's a duck. Got it. Okay. So they started to realize that we can price these products based on zones, based on where they live, based on all these other things that we don't have to draw their blood. We don't have to go see them. We don't have to do a lot of these other things that are the traditional things. We can do it this way and we come out with the same result. And the reason why I love sports is money ball in insurance is right happening now. Hmm. If you haven't seen money ball, go watch the movie money ball, right? Uh-huh. So money ball, they didn't necessarily find the best talent. They found the person with the best statistical talent. And the person that was more most likely, you know, basketball's gone to algorithmic. Um, that's how I, LeBron James and many of the pro players now are, are doing things differently with how they work out is because of that. You've seen that shift happen. Insurance is behind the eight ball on that. We're now starting to, to implement those things and think about it. And now it's our opportunity. If you're proactive as an advisor, if you're a client, you got to be thinking about, how is this going to impact me? If I gave you a magic wand and two opportunities to, to change something, um, change one thing for a client and one thing about the industry. Okay. So I'll only get two. Hey, you're, you're the guest. You get as many as you want. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, I think I'd change. I mean, the thing I would probably change for the industry is I would have more young professionals consider this as an opportunity to grow their career and to grow professionally along the way. I think the industry miss, has missed the boat on, on bringing in young, young, inspiring, just um, motivated talent and giving them the, not only the tools to excel, but the platform to excel. I would change the industry because I would have the industry reflect and look a lot like I would have the leadership from the top down from the company, the distribution channels all the way down to have the companies look like the markets in which we serve. It does not look like that. So we've got a we've got a pandemic happening in the insurance and financial services industry. We've got to change the way the actual because in those conversations, if we had a let's call it a diverse underwriting department, if we had diverse senior board, you would find that someone would bring up in the conversation, hey, how do we take, how do we get part of that segment of the population? Because right now we're not. Okay. And um, I want to buy. The insurance companies are capturing less than 0.1% of that. Like the numbers are just startling. So what are we doing wrong? As an industry, we have to ask ourselves, do we not care about that value of money? 
Do we not care about that buying power? If we care about that buying power, we have to do something a little bit differently if we want to embrace that buying power. We've got to recruit young people into the industry. Not necessarily career changers. Career changers are great, but we got to recruit new people into the industry because this is a wonderful industry. If you take the time to get to know it, if you take the time to, to, to get into it and you take the time to, to say, by helping other people become successful, ultimately I will become successful. So what would I change? I had a magic wand and you asked, what would I change about the client experience? Um, that it was faster. You know, I, I, would, I would hope that the insurance company take it serious, that, that a client shouldn't have to wait for three to six months to get an answer on an insurance contract. You know, it's, it's, it shouldn't take that. We have enough talented people. We got enough knowledge that crosses over between companies. I mean, if you take the top, you take the top five companies and you said, Hey, let's create a, a, a underwriting board, right? And the underwriting board would say, Hey, we are kind of the overseers of all underwriting of all insurance policies. And then those, those, those boards basically had the same guidelines along the way. And they had little tweaks to them at different companies that made the companies a little bit different, but then they wouldn't have to recreate the wheel. I think the challenge is that Northwestern Mutual has to go recreate the wheel for their platform. Then all of a sudden AIG has to go create it for theirs. John Hancock has to go create it for theirs. Um, One America has to create it for theirs. Mass Mutual has to create it for theirs. You got all these companies that are doing the same work. Think about that. They're doing the same work, but they're doing it independently. Yeah. I think the smartest people in the room say, collectively, we probably can do this together. And we probably, probably save, save money bunch, too. We'd save a bunch of money and we save time. And at the end of the day, we'd save the client experience because the client wouldn't have to suffer through our struggles to make this process better. Isn't that what it's all about? It is. It is. And um, I want to go back to what you said about getting uh, new talent. I think that's what we need is to develop that resource just like you would uh, in athletics. We might as well get ready because we, we're, we're going to have a strong surge of young, awesome talent coming into the industry, taking over from what the old school guys are doing. And, uh, you know, I tell, I tell everybody I know whose mentors are mine, don't be mad as you've set the, you've paved the groundwork for guys like me to come behind you and do more than you did. And I'm paving the groundwork for other people like that. So um, I think that is the push. And I think collectively, if we're collectively, we're strong, divided, we're weak. And that is across the board. So we've got to do a phenomenal bang up job over the next 15 to 20 years, not only supporting each other, supporting the elders, supporting our family, supporting the people we love and care about, but we got to support the people that we work with too. So, and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, if you are talking to those students or people who are considering, I have a 17 year old son, we were looking at uh, different degree opportunities the other day online. If you're talking to uh, those people that are considering the financial services industry, what words of wisdom would you give them? And you've given them some nuggets uh, throughout this conversation, uh, but what, what words would you leave them with? Um, I would simply tell them that 
Um, just because it hasn't been done doesn't mean it can't be done. You've got to have multiple skills going forward, not just one skill. So if you're going to study something in school, I would strongly suggest you have a multiple major or you have multiple things. One is communication. I think that's very smart. I think business, something in business and finance. I think those two things are things that you're absolutely going to need as you move forward because we are in an economy where just because it's the way it is today doesn't mean it's five years and it's evolving quickly. Five years from now, you'll have to reinvent yourself and come up with another way in which you can excel, okay? But just because in sports, just because you're playing the game and you have to change the game plan, does that mean the ultimate goal is not to win? So you have to be nimble enough to be able to change the game along the way as the game changes. We can't be so isolated amongst companies. We've got to have the ability to be agnostic and say, hey, you're a great guy at Northwestern Mutual. You're a great guy in New York, New York Life. I'm a great guy at Mass Mutual. You're a great guy at One America. We're a great guy here. Hey, let's put together a group where we can just be great together, right? Because steel sharpens steel. We have to have the ability to do that, and knowledge sharpens knowledge. So we, we want the ability to do that. And I think NAFA's doing a great job. MDRT's doing a great job. Gamma, LAMP. I can go on forever with some of the organizations, but – um, I think we have to do that. And the insurance companies and regulators that are listening to us, I think you have to do a better job is making sure that the product is accessible to everybody, period. Not just the people that have access to it or had access to it in the past. We've got to do a better job at that because the, the industry is saying the marketplace is screaming and yelling in times of challenge and strength we are saying they are saying that we want the companies in which we do business with to look like and represent and look like us that's what they're saying chris i can't thank you enough uh, for being with us today you've given us some incredible insight uh, from your experience and expertise uh, that i know your clients are, are lucky to have you and i appreciate uh, very much the time you've given us today all right, John. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this, this dynamic young man. He's crushing it. Um, make sure you listen to him. He's a, he's a guru on long-term care. If I could ever be able to help to anybody who listens to this call or anybody who, who, who's on this, uh, on this call or anybody who is just aspiring to be better than where they are today, my phone number is always available. Thank you for joining us today for a conversation with Chris Gandy. Join us next time as we visit with the Executive Director of Gamma Alpha Sigma, the organization connecting risk management talent with the insurance industry on 94 campuses across the United States and Canada.